Gumbo listeners, we are back with episode number 124. I'm your host, Demetrius Malbro, and today I have Stephen Umbehocker, the founder and CEO of OS Nexus on. And Steve has worked in the enterprise software and storage industry for 20 years, holding engineering leadership roles at companies including Citrix Systems, Symantec, and Veritas. Stephen holds over 20 patents in the areas of storage systems technology, SDS, and cloud computing. So in this episode, he explains why object storage has the scalability required for companies to manage petabytes of backup data, his views on the open source Ceph technology, and when to use public cloud object storage versus private cloud. So let's get right into this episode. Welcome to Data Protection Gumbo, Stephen. How are you? Doing good, Demetrius. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yes, it is definitely a pleasure to have you on again. You have been on multiple times and uh, back by popular demand. So uh, why don't you start off just by giving the Gumbo listeners a rundown of OS Nexus and maybe the story of how you created the company and where you are today? You bet. Yeah. I started OS Nexus about 11 years ago now. And it was I was at uh, Citrix at the time working on Zen Server and really saw a need for purely a software-based storage platform that would do file and block storage. Uh, at the time, those were kind of the primary protocols. Now we, we do object storage as well. But the, the need back then was really to try to make storage a lot like a hypervisor. You know, when you run VMware or Zen Server or Hyper-V, you could put that on any server that you want. But the idea of doing storage on any server you want back then was ludicrous. Nobody was going to go do that. Everybody wanted specialized hardware from NetApp or EMC to go do that. And the world's really changed a lot in the last 11 years, software-defined uh, is just taking over the data center. Software-defined storage is mainstream. And so that's the space that we're in. We do software-defined storage that's file block and object. And we do that on top of Linux uh, so that we get the, this ability to really build out a really strong, broad HCL for the product. Now, who do you still run into out there when, when you are competing in the storage world? Is, that, is, is EMC still around? And I know you have pure storage out there and, and a few others, but you know I don't watch the space as much as I used to. Who are you running running up against out there? And I guess what's different about OS Nexus than about anyone else that you're running up against? Yeah, we we run into like you're saying we run into pure, we run into NetApp, definitely run into EMC, especially the Isilon product. Hmm, Isilon's still out there. Yeah, they've renamed it. I think it's called Power Vault now or Power Power Max. They've they've renamed it. But it's uh, it's still there, and then we run into uh, on the uh, object storage side. We run into like Scality and Cloudian and and uh, StoreGrid from NetApp and and uh, and even EMC in that space. So wow, okay. There's a uh, uh, just a shift in how people use storage on prem. Whereas you know, ten years ago, everybody deployed on prem. The cloud wasn't really mature enough. Today. All, all the small, medium businesses have largely moved their stuff into the cloud. And be, that just saves them a lot of time and maintenance because if you have a smaller storage need, if, if you take a look at how much storage is being used across your, your business, and it's less than 10 terabytes, 
which is really common. You know, a lot of small businesses have got even less than some number of gigabytes of data. So uh, the cloud's just perfect for them. What we see nowadays is these larger organizations have huge data sets that where they're collecting data, sometimes from the Internet of Things, sometimes it's just they, they, their business produces large data sets. And so they're the ones that are on-prem and doing hybrid cloud because when you have a petabyte or multiple petabytes of storage, that's hugely expensive to go and put into the public cloud. You're looking at sometimes millions of dollars per year to go and have petabytes of storage in the, in the, in the public cloud. So that's kind of how things are different. You, you, a lot more uh, large businesses using on-prem and a hybrid cloud strategy. A lot more small businesses have have uh, moved to the uh, just kind of purely to the public cloud. Okay, and you mentioned moving to the cloud, so cloud migration, maybe less on-prem, taking workloads normally that you would run on-premises, and refactoring those workloads or lifting and shifting those workloads, um, or you know building them natively in the cloud. Are, are you seeing more and more of that? And if you are, like what recommendations do you have for gumbo listeners that may be embarking on maybe a shift uh, over to the cloud? Yeah, there's a strong shift towards using more containers because you, you know, where we went from physical uh, server deployments for everything to virtualization 10 years ago, that gave companies at least a 10 to one reduction in hardware. So companies would have like, you know, eight, 10 racks of servers that they could be consolidated down to one rack. And containers are doing the same thing all over again. Whereas a system that might be able to run, you know, 40, 50 virtual machines, you could run, you know, 500 or more containers on that same uh, level of equipment. And so, Businesses are rushing towards take re, redesigning their applications to run within containers, using containerized infrastructure to ensure the uptime of their applications, and and so that's that's that whole shift is also changing how people use storage. And so object storage is becoming more and more popular because you can set up this clustered, highly available object storage. You can have it on prem, like with our product, or use it in the cloud. And your containers can just easily just go, you know, and communicate over Ethernet over TCP/IP to go and grab data from your buckets over that S3 protocol. So the containers are, are I think, also uh, that movement towards containers also driving a, a more adoption of object storage. Okay, are, are you seeing one container product versus the other being used? I know there's Kubernetes out there and. Docker. I used to hear Docker out there also, but I, I don't know. I don't know what's what's the hot thing right now, or if uh, Kubernetes is still still the the primary container that everyone is building with. Is that is that a true statement? Yeah, that that is. So Kubernetes is is the kind of the captain of the ship. It's really steering the container. So if you look at Kubernetes, you want to think of Kubernetes as that as that huge ship. And the containers are like those uh, physical containers on the boat. And the, the cool thing that Kubernetes does is just really making sure that when containers start to fall off the ship, that it goes and, and fires up new ones so that the application has enough containers that are running for, for that particular app. So Kubernetes, when Google released that to the open source, 
they really took over the container management market because they've done such a good job use, you know, building that infrastructure in-house and using it that it had a, a, a hungry audience for it when they open sourced it. And, and then in terms of, of like the actual container packaging, uh, you know, there's, you know, another good analogy to like these shipping containers, like you look at different shipping containers and there's green ones and there's copper colored or brown colored ones and, and blue ones. And, and you know that that makes a difference, right? Via the, the 60 Minutes um, story they ran that the color right. of a physical shipping container means something. Okay. Yeah, I, I missed that part. It must be like maybe some of them are for like cooling uh, produce or something like that, right? Yeah, I think they, they, they try to keep the colors all together. And if let's say they have 50 red ones and they only have five green ones, then they don't have any more space for red ones, right? So if you have a red one coming in, then you may have to wait. Yeah, yeah. Right? And then the whole backlog gets pushed out. Then the backlog again. Yeah. Um, well, it's, you know, with these containers, uh, with Docker, Docker is just like a blue container. You know, there's a three or four different uh, competing container uh, uh infrastructure standards and there's red hat uses one and and different vendors use use different uh, ways of packaging it up but underneath they're kind of all using similar um technology within the linux kernel and all right. of that but uh kubernetes is definitely i think the the industry winner when it comes to how do you orchestrate starting and stopping these different containers and as i understand it kubernetes can work with multiple different underlying container packaging systems right so yeah I, I had kelsey hightower on a while ago and and he's he famously said man i don't see what all the hype is right now i'm i'm paraphrasing but he said it's just linux you know that's that's all it is you know it's just linux because people you know really glorify kubernetes and what it what it's capable of doing etc and it's like this this aura about it you know but he dumped it down a little bit to say yeah it's just linux right it's just the yeah. linux kernel it is. It's, so it, yeah. it's a way to go and uh, kind of like I think of it like a holodeck, you know, in Star Trek, you can go create this virtual environment, but you didn't have to produce a new ship. Right. You're still within the, the, the Linux environment. And then inside of there, you can run your applications inside these containers. And from the perspective of inside the container, all those applications running in there think they have their own operating system and everything, but they're actually just totally running within the kernel that that uh, uh, is on the real operating system underneath it. So uh, he's exactly right. Uh, it and the the excitement about it is the consolidation of of resources because mm -hmm. you right. can go from ten servers running virtual machines and do the same amount of work with one server running containers. And and I think where the, the biggest excitement is probably at Facebook and Google and all of these companies where they're looking at it going, okay, we're managing 10,000 servers or 50,000 servers worldwide, and they get to do a 10x reduction of that and go from 50,000 to five. And, uh, and so that's absolutely massive for, for these and when you're at that scale. Yeah, yeah, exciting stuff. So let let's talk object storage a little bit, and I know that that's more of your world. And uh, wh why don't you give us maybe a one-on-one -on -one definition of what object storage is, 
the capability behind it and what it's useful for in the backup world? Yeah, you bet. So traditional storage has always been two, two different styles of interacting with the storage. It's been block storage where you use protocols like Fiber Channel and iSCSI to talk to a device as if it's just a raw hard drive. So you connect it up and you have to format it with your file system and then use it that way. And then over time, accessing your storage over the network as files became more popular than that because now you could really share your storage. So that that really brought about the network attached storage or NAS storage industry. And the problem with directly, directly accessing the storage over a NAS protocol is that it's not really internet ready. You know, it's, it's a way of communicating the protocols that are popular like SMB and NFS. And you just don't want to go give the public internet access to a file system using those protocols. It's just not designed for that. So what did, what did uh, Amazon come up with? They came up with this thing called the Simple Storage Service or S3. And that S3 protocol just took over, took over like wildfire. And there was a lot of industry efforts behind object storage to try to set up a standard, but those standards never really caught fire like S3 did. And so what Amazon ended up creating is a de facto standard. Their S3 protocol, because it was so popular, is what everybody follows today. And so when you talk to like us, when we go and, and build object storage solutions, those talk the S3 protocol, specifically S3 compatible, because it looks and feels and works exactly like Amazon's S3. But that's what all object storage vendors are doing today across the board. If you buy object storage from EMC or NetApp or anyone or OS Nexus, it's, it's going to be a cluster that makes this group of boxes uh, work together to make it look like Amazon's S3. And the, the exciting thing about being able to recreate object storage on-prem is, is, is the cost savings and the performance benefits that you get by not having to go and share all that infrastructure with millions of other users that are using Amazon.com or other you know, object storage uh, systems. So it, it's funny to think, well, wouldn't it be more expensive if I went and buy, bought the equipment versus just using the, the uh, object storage in the cloud? And it's definitely cheaper to use object storage in the cloud when you're looking at a few terabytes. But when you start getting up into these large-scale applications, it's actually about 80% cheaper to have your own equipment versus sort of renting from uh, an uh, object storage vendor in the cloud. So basically, the protocol flows over uh, HTTPS, and you can point your web browser to the IP address or uh, to a uh, S3 system, a cluster, or even Amazon.com, and it'll come back and it'll give you this block of XML back saying, "Hey, you know, you're un you're not authenticated to access this bucket or or whatever." But it's it's basically an HTTPS. Uh, style protocol s3 has its own you know uh, uh, send receive uh, communication sort of headers and all of this sort of thing but it's designed for the web so you can take any application and send messages to an s3 bucket and get data back whether it's files or video content and and all of that and so it's like perfect for if you're developing phone applications or web applications 
you can interact with buckets and it's sort of cloud, it's a cloud native storage protocol. Okay. And so that's why it's just sort of sweeping uh, so many things. You, you mentioned scale, right? And so there's a difference on the scalability and I guess the size of the environment and the amount of data and the applications that you're running. When you need to bring it in-house or keep it in-house and build for yourself and maybe create a private cloud or go with an AWS or a, an Azure or a GCP, what, what recommendations or what, what's your experience as you are having conversations with customers and CIOs just from a scalability perspective, how large they are, et cetera? What, what recommendations in, um, that, that you provide for them when you have conversations around scale and recommendations? Yeah, uh- we talk with some customers that are, you know, managing storage upwards of 50 petabytes. And when you're at that scale, you really need an architecture where it's super resilient against uh, equipment failure. So you, you need to be able to sustain having multiple servers within the cluster fail at the same time. And this level of this kind of protection that you get against equipment failure, like one of the key parts that uh, of the architecture that protects against uh, equipment failure is a thing called erasure coding. And so the erasure coding, you choose some number of, is basically a, every time data is written, it's chunked up into a stripe so that it, the data is, is distributed across multiple servers. And there's kind of two parts to a stripe. There's the data part. So you have some number of data chunks and then some number of coding chunks that determines that that is used to rebuild the data if some of those data chunks are lost. And those are called K and M. M is the protection, the coding chunks. And for each coding chunk that you add to the stripe, you have the ability to have another server fail. So if you choose 10 plus five, that means that you've got every time you have a chunk of data, it gets broken up into 10 data chunks. And then you've got these five extra blocks to protect. And that means you could lose five servers. So just for round numbers, let's say you had 15 servers, you could have you could have somebody go into the data center and start switching off five of them, and your business is still running. There's zero downtime. And then and the neat thing is is that you can just keep adding uh, more and more capacity to these object storage systems on demand. So you might be at 15 servers, but you can just grow it to 30 and 40 and 50. And that being able, that ability to just keep growing. Uh, which, which is called scaling out uh, on demand is something that hasn't been there in the past with traditional storage systems. And, and to some degree or another, there's been scale out file systems, but the ability to really scale to the level that these object storage systems can reach uh, is really just new with object storage. And, it, and it, again, it's like it meets the, the needs of the cloud. And again, it kind of like, uh, Amazon coming out with that S3 protocol and, and really driving that architecture for their own cloud needs kind of got everybody innovating outside of Amazon. How do we do this outside of it and get these same benefits uh, of object storage? And so each per, each company has their own sort of secret sauce on how they do their object storage, but they're all based around this idea of erasure coding to protect the data and architectures where all the services are distributed so that servers can can be powered off or be thrown out without having any downtime. 
Gotcha, gotcha. I, I forgot about that word erasure coding. It was uh it was something I, I, I was heavy into back back in my in my rubric days. Yeah. Um but um you know one one thing that I also wanted to to ask you and, and go back a little bit, you have a product called Quanta Store and when you were thinking about building out your product and you looked around the ecosystem to see what was available, you know, open source technology, et cetera. What were some of the factors that you looked at to choose um, how to build the the actual brains of your system and, and the file system of, of your product? Yeah, we, this many years ago, right around 2014, 2015, we were really evaluating two technologies at the time, both of them open source, because we really believe in contributing to and, and driving open source innovation versus locking businesses into proprietary things because you see so many of these proprietary technologies they're popular for a few years and then they they die out and then the companies that use those have to go and switch to something new and then the critical mass is always just some some small some small team within within a company when you go open source you got hundreds of people all contributing to it and so the 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 technology takes on a life of its own and a, and a long term uh, lifespan, so that it'll be innovated, uh, or you know, innovations will be driven uh, for decades. So we love that. We want to be a part of that. And so we looked at Gluster and we looked at Ceph, and we actually integrated both of those technologies into Quantastore. And yeah, and Gluster was a bad bet. You know, unfortunately, it didn't mature as a technology. It's still out there. There's some people that are using it, but our personally, our our experience with the file system, it just wasn't near the technology that was built architecturally that Ceph uh, was. And you can see that today. The adoption of Ceph is huge. The adoption of Cluster is waning, and uh, and so we 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 removed all of that early cluster code from our product a few years ago and have been fully behind you know driving uh the, the use of ceph and and using that in the platform and so ceph does file block an object it has like this common scale out erasure coding technology that is used underneath all the file block and object capabilities and so we can go and set up a cluster and then the customer can say hey i want to use some, i want a file system on this I want to do scale out file storage and we can create a pool for that and they can say well i want a, another pool for object storage and they can do that all at the same time on the same substrate so we've been um, big advocates of of ceph and the ceph technology and, and what we do is we demystify it and we just make it super simple for everyone to adopt so you can go instead of having to be a ceph scientist and a, you know have a phd in that in that technology, you can just download our Quantastore product, install that on some servers and start using it in a matter of, of just a few minutes to go set it up. You know, a typical time to set up a Ceph cluster with our product is somewhere in the minute, neighborhood of 15, 20 minutes. Uh, bigger clusters maybe a little more, but it's approachable to everybody because you can go into the GUI and click the getting started and walk, walk through the six steps of setting up the object storage and it's just click through. And, uh, and, and that, that's, that's just making all that great technology that was developed in the open source just accessible to a much, much bigger audience. Now, um, I, I forgot exactly 
how your technology plays or integrates with, let's say, a backup software. Is, is it just mostly a target or is the backup software, are they able to utilize your system as a, as a place to actually store, you know, the database and the server of the, you know, I'll let you explain it to the listeners though. Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, both the kind of the short answer is both. Okay. We added a, a, a feature into the product where you can do backup to the cloud. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies don't want to deal with tape anymore. And so the, an ideal way to go get a backup of their critical data is to use object storage in the cloud. And so they can use Quantastore as file storage, but then set up a backup policy in, within the within Quantastore, what we call the storage grid. They just log into it, say, I want a backup policy. I want it to go to my mm-hmm. Amazon or my uh, Microsoft Azure Blob uh, account, and then it'll do backups of their data to the cloud automatically which is super convenient. And then you don't have to deal with swapping tapes or any of that sort of stuff. But we do a lot of work with uh, companies like Veeam and, and other backup vendors so that companies can use Quantastore as a target for their backups. And that's a much more powerful and like robust backup solution. I'd say our backup is covers some basic needs, but when you're talking about you know like the full scope of everything that you need to do with backup, you want a purpose built backup product and uh and so then quantistore can be used as an object uh tar- object storage target or block or file so all three protocols you can use uh with with the back with the various backup products and when you look at all of the backup vendors pretty much across the board they all support backup to something that's s3 compatible we were talking earlier about, hey, everybody that does object storage has to make it look like Amazon's cloud. And so all these different vendors are are going and making it so that their backup products can do backup to object storage. It used to be uh, called disk-to-disk backup, and it would, you know, you do backup from all of your laptops to maybe a big central network-attached storage uh, system or some local disk. But nowadays, it's all about, okay, take all of that data, encrypt it, and then push it into the cloud uh, or a local object storage cloud. So you can now, you know, with products like ours, you can go set up your own object storage cluster and use that as a target for your backups rather than having to deal with swapping tapes and all that sort of stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. And um, it, it wouldn't be a, a, a true gumbo episode if we didn't bring up ransomware. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, yeah. It, it's a topic that, that continuously comes up today, and I forgot what that number is. It's increasing, like a ransomware attack happens every 14 seconds or something. I can't remember what that number is, but it's, it's crazy and ridiculous um, how far advanced the threat actors have gotten with that business. What, what recommendations would you provide Gumbo listeners just to maybe protect, not protect against ransomware, but to recover? From ransomware. Yeah. One of the key things is to, as we were discussing, you, you wanted to be doing uh, backups. You want to have a nice backup system. But one of the other things that you can do to protect against ransomware is uh, taking regular snapshots of your data. So uh, as I understand it, one of the ways that they, they attack is they'll break into your systems, you know, and you you're, it may take some amount of time before you're uh, IT staff know that there has been a break a break in, maybe months, right? And during that time, they're going to put in 
the ability for them to kind of log in as, as root, like administrator access to all of your systems. And then the way they attack is they lock you out of your systems and they encrypt your data so that you've got some file that's got some really key information. Maybe it's a database of all your accounts and stuff and maybe your billing system, right? They'll go and encrypt that data and then you can't access it because it's in an encrypted file. So then you have to pay the ransomware for them to, to go in and unlock it. But there was a point in time before they encrypted that critical asset of yours. And if you have a backup of that file, then you can go back in time and get that, that file from tape and get your systems back up and running. But if you think about it, that's good that you can go and get the, get your data back off of your tape drive, but that's a really, really slow process. Wouldn't it be great if you could snap your fingers and roll the whole system back in time and be able to find out, okay, when can I bring my, you know, when was my system good before they had in, encrypted my critical data? And you can do that with snapshots. And so uh, our product does snapshots, but you can take a look at, at, at if, all modern SAN NAS systems pretty much uh, have this ability to go and create a snapshot and, and create a snapshot schedule. And so I recommend everybody log into their systems and see how often are you making snapshots. And if you're only making snapshots like once a day and only keeping those snapshots for a week, think about changing that schedule so that you've got snapshots that go back a couple of quarters. Because if the attack took place and uh, like last quarter and your snapshots are only for the last few days, then you're just snapshotting the bad data, the data that they've already had, right? But if you have old snapshots you can roll back in time to, then you can sort of effectively have your equip equipment time travel back and then you can bring your business back online. Now, it might be a little bit older data at that point, but you at least have the business back up online. You can start to recover uh, that other information maybe from backups or whatever but you're not totally down uh but yeah I, I definitely look at the snapshot schedules of of how often you're making those snapshots and also test your backups so if you have done a backup <laughs> so many companies will do their backups and ne never look at them but you might be encrypt backing up data that's encrypted that you can't decrypt so you need like a a, a dr site where you can go and recover from some you know, uh, point in time and verify things. You just really need to also just check your backups, make sure that they are solid. Yeah, and uh, one other thing too, since I'm a big backup guy, is just, is just uh, which makes it easy and simple is, you know, just from true business uh, resiliency and business continuity and disaster recovery, recovery time objectives, recovery point objectives, right? Just make make, make yeah. sure you you sit down and you plan uh, with the CIO, the CISO, you know, whatever C-level executives you have and, you know, understand exactly how often you need to take these backups and uh, how long you need to keep these backups, where you're going to send these backups, et cetera. So all great advice there. And uh, and Steve, I'm going to I'm going to do something new here. It's 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 called rapid fire. OK, so maybe give me a one sentence answer. First thing that comes to your mind, I'm going to throw out a word or a couple of words. Okay. All right. All right. The first one is artificial intelligence. Developing. Developing. Okay. Okay. And you, you can give me more if you want, if you want on it. It doesn't have to be one word from you. I think that we're just at 
you know, it's like the last era was really the information age. And I really feel like AI has the potential to change every single branch of science and industry because it's just, it's an, it's an optimizer, right? If you take a look at any process that, that we do today, whether it's trying to find a new vaccine or trying to uh, do something creative, you know, like even like writing new music, uh, I think AI is going to start having a role in there where you'll have like an idea, like hey, I'm, you maybe you play something and it goes and says, well, what about this idea and that idea? And AI can, you can say, well, I want it to sound a little bit like take uh, Eddie Van Halen and Stevie Wonder. And what would that be like? Right. And the AI is going to come up with a bunch of bad ideas, but I think it, what it can present to us as humans is these branches of the tree that we can pick from. Okay. All right. What one more, one more since you 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 went really deep on that one. Sure. <laughs> COVID-19. Uh hope as be the word. I just hope it's gone. I hope that, you know, that the vaccines that we've all taken is uh are are, are vaccines that are going to really uh work against new variants as they develop. I'm going to I have to go travel uh okay. here in a, in a couple weeks and so i'm going to go get my third shot and i'm just you know fingers crossed that i don't pick up anything in my travel yeah. but it's uh i just hope that it's gone i hope that it's over uh with you know this coming year you know that the, there's the pandemic uh what was it uh that uh, was 100 years ago and that one lasted two years it was the spanish flu Which one the plague oh the spanish yeah the okay. spanish flu and but it wasn't from spain it was like from pittsburgh or something i forget yeah, you know something <laughs> weird. yeah yeah it's origin wasn't wasn't there but uh it uh it took a couple of years and i hope that we're on the tail end of of all of this and we can put it behind and, and everything yeah hope. i'm right there with you R remaining hopeful that this thing will continue to diminish and and wane um so steve it was definitely a pleasure to have you on the gumbo again and uh, everyone, please go out and follow Stephen on all of his social media accounts. And I'm sure the primary way is what, LinkedIn? Yep, probably LinkedIn. Yep. Okay. He's an open networker. So I, if he declines it, just reach out to me and then I'll, uh, I'll let him know that it was, it, it, it was a gumbo acquaintance there. Awesome. Yeah, right? definitely. We will um, maybe have you on the show again so we can, we can talk about some of the other new and interesting things that, that, that you're doing and pull some insight from you as well. So... I appreciate you coming on the show today. You bet. Uh, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Demetrius. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.